You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Mary Goff. Goff was the only daughter of Marie and James Goff. She had five brothers, and the family were from Stamullen, County Meath. She was an independent girl, but was very close with her mother, a relationship that only strengthened more after the sudden death of her father in 1989, when Mary was only 15 years old. She was a hard worker, and although she hated school, Mary went every day. In fact, According to an interview with her mother Marie in the Fingal Independent, Marie had a distinct memory of her daughter returning home having completed her final exam in the leaving certificate. Mary had been collected by her uncle, and as she walked up the path to her front door, she lifted the top of the wheelie bin and dumped her entire school bag in it, glad that she would never need it again. Mary balanced her dislike of formal education with going to work after school hours. She got her first job at 16 in the nearby town of Drogheda, and was so determined to take care of herself that she cycled the eight miles each way to the town, rather than rely on others for lifts. A year after working in Drogheda, she took up a job in the Huntsman pub in Gormanstown, County Meath, which was much closer to home, less than two miles away. In 1993, in that pub, Mary Goff met Colin Whelan. The two had known each other to see, but had never really spoken until then. Colin was a local lad from Gormanston, and had a similar background to Mary. He had three brothers and two sisters, and was just a few years older than Mary. He studied computer science at Letterkenny College in Donegal, and when he graduated, he took up a good job as a computer analyst with Irish Permanent on Stevens Green in Dublin city centre. Mary and Colin started going out, and it soon became a steady relationship. Colin became part of Mary's family, and vice versa. But in April of 1995, Colin suddenly broke things off with Mary, with no explanation. Mary was devastated, but Colin was cold and detached. He gave no reason for the breakup, and didn't seem to care how upset she was. After some time grieving, Mary's independent streak took over. According to author Siobhan Gaffney in her book on the case Till Death Do Us Part, Mary got a new job working as a secretary with a large film company. She did so well there that when they finished promoting that film, Rob Roy, they asked her to move to Scotland and keep on in the job. Mary didn't want to move, though, and so she started working in a solicitor's office in Swords. She started off as a receptionist, but was soon moved to their conveyancing department to work as a legal secretary. Colin and Mary had been split up for six months at that stage, and then they started to see each other again. In August of 1997, 
Mary moved in with Colin, who had just bought his grandfather's old house in Balbriggan. The young couple seemed to have everything that they needed, a place to live, two steady, well-paying jobs, and their relationship. Things were coming together, and they were settling down with one another. But their relationship wasn't without its hardships. In January of 1997, the couple was tested by an horrific experience. Colin had been drinking in the pub that the two had met in, the Huntsman, and the couple decided to leave. Each got into their own cars and headed in the direction of home to Belbriggan. But Colin got into an awful car accident on the way home. He lost control of his car and it slammed into an oncoming vehicle, which was driven by a local man, Thomas Murphy. Mr. Murphy's wife, Elizabeth, who was 62 years old, was in the passenger seat and took the brunt of the impact. Tragically, she died in the crash, although Thomas and Whelan were not badly injured. Colin Whelan was then charged in relation to Mrs. Murphy's death. Nevertheless, in October 1998, Colin proposed to Mary while they were on holiday in Fortaventura, and they set about doing up the house with a complete refurbishment. The house was an older, two-storey terrace just off the main street in Balbriggan, a small seaside town to the far north of County Dublin. As the couple prepared for their future together, Mary's mother Marie was so often there with them that Mary set up one of the upstairs rooms as hers, complete with a closet and chest of drawers. They were, by all accounts, a close family, made even closer by the pending charges against Colin for the car accident. When that case came to court, Colin pled not guilty to all of the charges and was found not guilty on the counts of drink driving. Inexplicably, the state withdrew the charge of death caused by dangerous driving at the last minute and offered no evidence in that regard. In the end, Colin was found guilty of careless driving and fined £350 and he was given a six-month driving ban. Relieved, the young couple could go about planning their lives together with the court case taken care of, and their focus became their upcoming wedding. According to Siobhan Gaffney's book, during the wedding planning, Colin was unusually present. It's something that's far more common these days, but at the time, his involvement seemed strange. Marie recalled that Colin was around all the time and she had the impression that his intentions related more to not wanting to leave Mary alone with her mother rather than the wedding planning itself. However, on the 9th of September 2000, the couple got married in Stamullen. The day went smoothly, barring only one incident early on in the festivities. Mary had burst into tears after the ceremony and ran back into the church, away from the guests who were waiting to shake hands and hug and congratulate the young couple. The display of emotions was put down by guests and friends to Mary perhaps wishing that her father had been at the wedding, and keenly feeling his loss in that moment. But, as Marie Goff told Siobhan Gaffney, she now suspects that there may have been more to it than that. The newlyweds went on honeymoon and travelled across Southeast Asia, through Thailand and Singapore. They had a holiday of a lifetime, but when they returned, Mary seemed to have changed. Marie wasn't asked over to the house very often, and she never once stayed overnight after that point. 
Marie recalled that Mary would make plans with her, but would never follow through. The two women who had once been so close were becoming distant. On Wednesday the 28th of February, Colin Whelan went to work in Dublin city centre as usual. By this stage, although he was still working for Irish Permanent, he was a self-employed independent contractor. Colin still had a permanent desk in the building, though. He left work during the day to head into Brown Thomas, where he bought a gift for Mary, a bronze statuette that matched one they'd been given as a wedding present six months before. When he finished work, Colin headed for his train home to Balbriggan at about 5pm, stopping to pick up the Evening Herald to read on his way home. When Colin got in, Mary was waiting for him. He changed clothes and headed to a local gym to work out while Mary made their dinner. Mary rang her mother for a chat and when Colin got back, the couple ate together. After that, the two drove to Drogheda, where Mary was to collect the results of a blood test she had taken for a homeopath. Mary was trying to get healthy and get into shape. That appointment was at a quarter past nine and then they drove home together. Colin went upstairs to shower and then Mary made her way up to bed herself. At 16 minutes past midnight, Colin Whelan placed a call to the emergency services, saying he needed an ambulance, that his wife had fallen down the stairs. As he described Mary's condition to the dispatcher, a feeling of urgency overtook the operator. Colin told him he didn't think his wife was breathing, that she was blue in colour and that he couldn't feel a pulse. This was no minor injury no minor fall. The dispatcher talked Colin through clearing Mary's airway, tilting her head back, and to prepare for CPR. He told Colin to breathe into Mary's mouth and explained chest compressions. But Colin said her chest wasn't moving. Nothing was working. Shortly after, the ambulance crew and fire engine arrived. It was half twelve as the paramedics arrived at the house and found Mary lying alongside the bottom of the stairs, her face turned towards the front door. She looked for all the world as if she had just collapsed from standing. There was blood on her face and she wasn't breathing and she was covered with a heavy duvet. Colin appeared to be in shock and kept asking, is she gone, is she gone? Strangely, they noticed that he had no blood on his hands or face. When the paramedics removed the blanket from Mary's body, they discovered she was already quite cold, despite the warmth of the house and the fact that they'd arrived only 15 minutes after the call for help had come in. Nevertheless, the paramedics tried to shock Mary's heart back to beating. Colin stood by sobbing and crying openly while the medics went about their work. The distraught husband noted a tear in his wife's sleeve and said to them that Mary must have caught herself on the banister before falling. The crew loaded Mary onto a stretcher and rushed to the nearest hospital, Beaumont, to try and save her life. Colin stood by silently, watching, and asked again, is she dead? He was told it didn't look good. With that, Whelan shouted, quote, well, is she dead or not dead? End quote. The paramedic told him that he wasn't in a position to say at that point, and Colin responded, quote, Well, I can read between the fucking lines, end quote. Whelan then went inside and got dressed, 
preparing to head to the hospital himself. Before Colin headed that way, he and a fireman called by the homes of Colin's brother-in-law and one of Mary's brothers to pass on the news that something had happened. Colin stayed in the car while the men were told that they needed to come with them to the hospital urgently. He sat with his hands covering his face, crying. There was a team of doctors waiting for the ambulance's arrival with Mary, and they went to work immediately. Their focus was trying to save her life, to get her breathing and her heart beating again. But amidst intubation and ECGs and injections of adrenaline, CPR and defibrillation, the doctors noticed some things about Mary's condition that seemed off. Her tongue was swollen, as well as the tissue around her larynx. There were marks on her neck and chest that were not consistent with a fall down the stairs. Her colour was off, and she was cold. She looked and felt like someone who had been dead for a while. After 25 minutes of desperately trying to revive her, the doctors in the hospital pronounced Mary Goff dead at 1.25am. Based on the information that they'd been given that Mary had fallen down the stairs, the medical team were at a loss to explain what had happened to the otherwise fit and healthy 27-year-old woman. While the doctors had been working on Mary, the nurse in charge of the A&E had approached Colin and asked what had happened. They needed to know if there was some other medical cause for the fall. Colin told the hospital workers that Mary wasn't moving when he found her. He said that her eyes may have fluttered open slightly, but that was all. As Colin sat in the side office and explained that he hadn't seen the fall, he leant forward causing his shirt to gape open. The nurse, Catherine Galvin, noticed a number of deep scratches on Colin's chest. She said nothing but got up and notified the guardie. The doctor in charge of the A&E that night found Colin after he had pronounced Mary's death to deliver the news and to inform Whelan that, given the circumstances, a post-mortem would be performed. Again, Colin put his head into his hands and sobbed. Gardie arrived to the hospital just after Marie, Mary's distraught mother, got there. They explained to Whelan that they had routine questions to ask him and expressed their sympathies. They asked Colin to identify his wife's body and then to describe the events of the day. He said that Mary had had a shower that evening even though this seemed strange, as her hair wasn't wet and there was no smell of soap or shower products noticed by medical staff. Then Superintendent Thomas Gallagher asked Colin about the scrapes on his chest. Colin said he hadn't been scratched, but then looked at his chest and saw the long red marks there. He went pale when he saw them. All he could say was that he didn't remember being scratched, and that it must have happened after he'd found Mary on the floor, after the fall. Colin explained that actually, Mary had gasped while lying at the foot of the stairs, trying to catch her breath, and had reached out to him. Whelan said that she must have scratched him then. A few hours later, Colin Whelan was brought into a private room in the hospital for the scratch marks to be examined. When he removed his shirt, 
there were three areas of definite scrapes, long, parallel lines that looked like they'd been made by fingernails. There was no bruising or swelling, though, just the abrasions. Colin said that he hadn't been in any fights in the previous few days, nor had he and Mary argued at any point. He said it had just been him and Mary in the house the night before. He confirmed that they were on their own. The next morning, Colin Whelan was asked to present himself at Balbriggan Garda Station to make a formal statement about what had happened the night before, which he did. He repeated the story he'd been telling medical staff and police members all night. After that, he went back to his family home in Gormanstown, as the guardie had his house keys. They wanted to have a look at the place they'd been told Mary had inexplicably fallen to her death. Meanwhile, Professor Mary Cassidy carried out a post-mortem on Mary Goff's body. The chief state pathologist was told that the woman had been brought to hospital after a reported fall down the stairs. But Professor Cassidy didn't find any of the injuries generally associated with such a fall. There was no significant head injury, no broken spine or neck. What Professor Cassidy did find was petechia around Mary's eyes and in her mouth, and bruising to the muscles deep in her neck. There were ligature marks on the right side of Mary Goff's neck and damage to her tongue. Mary Cassidy was in no doubt. Mary Goff had died from asphyxia due to strangulation. On Friday, Gardy arrived at the Whelan home in Gormanston to break the news that Mary's cause of death didn't line up with what Colin had told them. According to an article by Dunica McRagnall in the Irish Independent, Whelan announced to the guardie who had informed him that Mary had been strangled, quote, I love my wife. I bought her a present, end quote. His reaction was described as one of indignation. Mary had fallen. That was that. If the guardie thought he was lying, he said, why didn't they just arrest him there and then? But they didn't. The guardie were gathering evidence. The following day, on Saturday, Gardie arrived back at the house to inform Whelan that his wife had died from strangulation. He wasn't under arrest, they said, but he was cautioned that anything he said could be used as evidence. All Colin said was, quote, it's not possible, end quote. Gardie continued their investigation as Whelan tried desperately to convince his family and Mary's family that he had told the truth that he had had no idea what the guardie were talking about, and that Mary had fallen to her death. But guardie gathered from the scene and Mary's manner of death that her killing had been planned. They sought and were granted search warrants for his office computer and work records. Whelan's search history was his undoing. His home computer had nothing of interest on it, but things were more complex when it came to his office desktop. There was nothing of note on that hard drive, but all of the computer's activities were stored in a server by Irish Permanent. Colin Whelan's internet searches were stored on that server. Gardy discovered that Whelan had accessed websites about strangulation and murder, and seemed to have a fixation with an American serial killer named Henry Lewis Wallace from North Carolina 
also known as the Taco Bell Strangler. Wallace got that moniker because a number of his victims had worked with him in the fast food restaurant. What startled Gardein most was discovering that Colin Whelan seemed to have copied a number of unusual aspects of that killer's crimes. Strangulation with a ligature, making the death look like an accident, and covering the body to keep it warm were just a few of the similarities. Henry Lewis Wallace was but one of the murderers Colin Whelan had looked up, but it seemed he was a favourite. Whelan had even accessed his trial transcripts. Searches from Whelan's work computer that amounted to what could only be called research into how best to strangle someone dated as far back as to three weeks before the young couple's wedding. It looked as if Colin had been planning this for some time. But Colin hadn't just been looking up how to commit crimes. He had also signed himself up for dating sites particularly the ones catering to those who were looking for extramarital affairs. Sex was another preoccupation, it would seem. Whelan had been talking to a number of women all over the world. In fact, in December of 2000, Whelan had struck up an online relationship with a woman from Wales, Helen Shepherd. She had a home office and spent most of her time on a computer when she wasn't travelling for work. According to Siobhan Gaffney's book, Helen had begun her online life in earnest when she got a laptop with an internet connection, and Helen enjoyed going into the chat rooms and meeting new people. And one of the people she met was Colin, a.k.a. Celtic Tackle. Colin fed her all sorts of stories about himself, that he'd been married for only four months before his wife died in a car accident, and that his father was suffering from cancer. The two emailed each other multiple times a day and spoke on the phone and texted back and forth. They wrote to each other as if they were teenagers. Helen wanted to meet Colin and he agreed to come see her in Wales. They'd even spoken on the 28th of February while Colin was in work. But that was the last time that Helen ever heard from him. Helen Shepherd was contacted by police in Wales on behalf of the Gardaí and was asked about her relationship with Colin Whelan. She was in total shock to hear that Colin was married and was suspected in the murder of his wife. Helen said she would help in any way possible with their investigations. Mary's funeral was held on the 7th of March at St. Patrick's Church, Stamullen, where she had been married less than a year before. Colin and his family all attended. The Whelans had no clue what was going on in the Garda investigation, but everyone else knew. Other members of the community were shocked to see that Colin had attended at all, never mind that he played the role of the grieving husband. Though he sat with his own family and on the other side of the small church, away from Marie and the rest of the Goths. After the funeral, Gardie contacted Marie and brought her to the house in Balbriggan to gather up anything of Mary's that she might want before they turned the house back over to Colin. They were worried Colin might just be rid of everything. But they needn't have worried. Anything they left behind, Colin gathered up in bags just a few days after he returned to the house and called the Goths to tell them they could come and collect it if they wanted. He kept nothing belonging to his deceased wife, no keepsakes or memories. He handed everything of Mary's back to her family, 
and Colin decided to get on with his life, confident that if the Gardaí truly thought him guilty of murder, and more importantly, could have actually proved it, they would have arrested him already. Further inquiries into the Whelan's financial affairs also uncovered that there was a substantial life insurance policy taken out for the couple. They had initially insured themselves at £200,000, but Colin had asked for and been granted an increase in the policy to £400,000, explaining that he was essentially self-employed. The couple were young and healthy, on track to be quite well off, and a low risk, and so the insurers agreed. In the event of either's death, the surviving spouse would inherit the premium amount solely. It was a windfall. An Irish independent article written by Maeve Sheehan reported the opinion of an independent financial expert brought in by the Gardaí to assess the life insurance policy taken out by Whelan. Leo Bones said that the cover was, quote, inappropriate, excessive and highly questionable, end quote. Not only was the amount exceedingly high, it covered a time period of only 10 years after the couple's marriage and did not cover critical illness or accidents. Basically, there was no income protection should either become unable to work, which would be quite usual. In the aftermath of Mary Goff's death, Gardy searched the house on Clonard Street in Balbriggan to see if there was any evidence there that might indicate what had happened to Mary. The ambulance crew who had arrived at the premises that morning had confirmed to police that they had seen no blood on Colin's hands or face, despite his telling the 999 dispatcher that he was attempting to resuscitate Mary, who was bleeding from her nose and mouth. Nor was any blood found by Gardy on the home telephone where that call to emergency services was made. No blood was found on the stairs or on the floor in the hall at the foot of the stairs where Mary had lain. Gardy did find a shirt, a green and white men's Wrangler shirt, that had been left on the landing with blood on the left-hand side. The wooden saddleboard at the doorway between the bedroom and the landing also had small smears of blood on it, meaning that likely Mary was already bleeding as she left the bedroom. There was more blood found on part of the skirting boards upstairs too. Much of what was found was a fine mist of blood droplets, the kind that are produced when blood is dispersed from a person's breath, aspirated. It wasn't really visible to the eye, but it was there all the same. Colin Whelan's navy and white striped dressing gown also had this type of blood spray on it. A fine mist of blood was found on the middle of the belt of the dressing gown, which would sit in the middle of his back when it was being worn. At some point, this belt had been close to Mary's mouth or nose as she bled. On Tuesday the 10th of April 2001, just after 8am, the Gardaí arrived at the door of the Whelan family home, where Colin was still staying. He decided to redecorate the home he'd shared with Mary and rent it out. The Gardaí were let in by Colin's mother and they found Colin himself in his room in bed, but awake. Whelan dressed and followed the senior Gardaí into the sitting room, thinking that they were there to search the house. Colin was shocked when, instead, he was cautioned 
and informed that he was being arrested on suspicion of murdering his wife, Mary Whelan. Just before 9 a.m., Colin Whelan found himself in a small, bare interrogation room at Balbriggan Garda Station, faced with investigators who had been preparing for this moment for over a week. Siobhan Gaffney recounted the events of the interview that day. Amazingly, in his first session, Whelan sat there on his own, without a solicitor, and answered questions. Gardy asked him what really happened the night his wife died, and Whelan repeated the story that he had told them before, saying his initial statement was true and correct. Mary had fallen. Whelan went through the events of the evening, confirming that he and Mary had been home alone that night. When Gardy began to probe him about whether or not Mary had grabbed him or scratched him, Whelan decided that that was the time to follow the advice he had no doubt been given. He began to respond to each question with the phrase, no comment. But for whatever reason, he hadn't completely shut them down. He couldn't help but try and explain himself, and to try and get them to believe his version of events. At 10am, Whelan met personally with his solicitor, which seemed to shore up this compulsion, and Colin gave his stock response to the guardee throughout the rest of that interview. Interviews were resumed after a short break that afternoon. Gardee started off by questioning Colin about the nature of his relationship with his wife. Whelan insisted that he and Mary loved each other, and that they had a happy marriage. And then, Gardee confronted him with the messages sent between him and Helen Shepherd. A copy of each piece of communication between the two was presented to him bound together. Whelan had to admit that he had been having an online affair and that he'd been lying to Helen. He said that he hadn't intended on meeting her, and he was putting her off, even though he admitted that he had done searches for hotels in Wales. Whelan's demeanour entirely changed after the guardie revealed that they had found his internet search history. He now seemed deflated as he gave his no-comment responses to questions about why it was that search terms such as lack of oxygen to the brain, and death by strangulation had been made from his computer in work, and why he had visited websites about serial murderers and stranglers. Still, Whelan made no admissions that he had had anything to do with Mary's death. In his final interview that day, beginning at 7pm, Gardy asked him about the life insurance policy. Whelan answered the questions that were put to him, as if it was a normal, routine thing to have such a large policy for people so young. Again, Gardie brought him through his various suspicious internet searches, his online affair, and then they presented him with the forensic evidence from the house in Balbriggan, including the blood evidence, indicating Mary had first been attacked in the bedroom upstairs. Whelan still had nothing to say, or at least did not feel the need to admit anything to them. After this more difficult and contentious interview session, Whelan refused to sign and confirm the transcript of the interview with the police. He was no longer willing to make a show of cooperation. The next morning, Colin Whelan was brought from Balbriggan Garda Station to Swords District Court, where he was formally charged with the murder of Mary. 
When the charges were read to him in court, he said only, quote, I didn't do it, end quote. Five minutes later, he was on his way to Cloverhill Prison. His next court appearance was at the prison itself, at the High Court bail application hearings. His lawyers asked that Whelan be granted bail despite guard objections. Colin Whelan was ordered to hand over his passport, sign on in the Garda station twice weekly, and lodge a sum of money with the courts, and he was released then to await his trial. The granting of bail is fairly common here. Judges generally don't like to keep people in prison before they've been convicted of something, unless there are extenuating circumstances. The Gardaí generally oppose bail in cases of violent crimes, and certainly in a case where there is a murder charge. But more often than not, if the accused agrees to abide by terms that include passport surrender and curfews, then the judges at the High Court are likely to allow it. And that's what happened in Colin Whelan's case. He returned to the family home in Gormanston, County Meath, and for a while he lay low. He was effectively surrounded by Mary's family and friends. His family noticed that he seemed to be suffering from low moods and had bouts of what they assumed was depression. But after a while, despite these health difficulties, Colin was seen out and about in the community. And then, on the 12th of March, 2003, Colin announced to his family that he was going on a drive. He wanted to go to Hoth, a seaside town just outside Dublin City, noted for its high hill and its cliff hiking trails. But that evening, Colin didn't arrive at Balbriggan Station at his appointed time to sign on. Gardy at first assumed he was running late or had had car trouble. But as time moved on, it was becoming a clear breach of his bail conditions. They contacted the Whelan home and were told that Colin wasn't there either. No one had seen him since he announced he was going for a drive. And so then, Gardy from Balbriggan travelled south to Hoth Head and up the hill. There they found Colin's car. There were some personal belongings left inside, and it was clear that no one had been in the vehicle for some hours. A widespread air and sea search began. Colin was gone. Presumably, he had jumped into the sea to his death. In mid-June 2004, over a full year from Colin Whelan's disappearance and presumed suicide, fishermen were bringing in their nets near to Skerries, another coastal town 25 kilometres or 15 miles north of Hoth, where Colin's Puja was found abandoned near the cliff walk. Tangled within the nets was a body. Initial indications were that it was the body of a man, about six foot in height, wearing jeans, a green and navy striped top and shoes. Although it was initially suspected that it could be him, Colin Whelan was quickly ruled out as the poor man through testing, and Gardee began looking into boats, missing crew members and missing men from both Ireland and the UK. Colin Whelan's body was never recovered, which was unusual, but the Gardee would make no further comment on the case. However, Marie Goff had no qualms doing so, and spoke to a reporter from the Mirror, Pat Flanagan, saying, quote, I don't believe he's dead. He's just not the type to commit suicide. He's hard as nails. 
He thinks too much of himself to take his own life. He could be anywhere, for all we know. But I don't hate him. All our family wants is justice, end quote. Marie Goff was right. Colin Whelan was spotted 16 months after his disappearance by an Irishman visiting Santa Panza, a sunny Spanish resort town on the island of Majorca. What had actually happened was that Colin Whelan had applied for and received a passport in his neighbour's name. Martin Sweeney was his age and lived with his parents. He'd never left the country and so didn't have a passport of his own. Colin knew enough details about his life to obtain a copy of his birth certificate and have the passport made, but with his picture instead of Martin Sweeney's. That evening, he had driven to Hoth and abandoned his car, trying to make it look as if he'd gone over the cliff's edge. Instead, he'd made his way, somehow totally unnoticed, to Dublin Airport and boarded a flight to Majorca. He chose a resort that was less popular with Irish holidaymakers and set about getting a job as a bartender and a place to live. For the next number of months, Colin, now going by Kean, partied hard. According to Siobhan Gaffney, he drank, did cocaine, visited sex workers and strip clubs. He felt free to do as he pleased. Eventually, he began a casual relationship with a woman there, and as he became more and more comfortable, he began to get cocky, forgetting that he needed to be careful about people from home seeing him and maybe recognising him. Forgetting that he needed to be careful about people from home seeing him and maybe recognising him. Ireland is a small place, and the world is a small place for Irish people. We're everywhere. And so, eventually, an Irish tourist had seen him working in a bar called Karma. Initially, the holidaymaker couldn't place where he knew Colin's face from, but then he realised. He watched the man closely to be sure that the barman was in fact Irish, and was in fact the man presumed to have thrown himself off Hoth Head over a year before. When the man got back to Ireland, he rang Gardy immediately and told them what and who he had seen. Gardy had no reason to doubt the man who seemed quite sure that the bartender was in fact Colin Whelan, the accused murderer. Gardy, as it would turn out, never really bought the suicide story, and so quickly Interpol was contacted with Whelan's file, which was passed on to the authorities in Spain. Plainclothes police officers visited Karma Bar on a number of occasions and watched the Irishman, who by that point had been promoted to head barman and was managing a staff of 12. They informed Gardy that it appeared to be a positive identification. Colin Whelan hadn't even taken any lengths to change his appearance. He matched the photos nearly exactly. And so on Saturday the 10th of July 2004, Spanish police surrounded the bar and waited for Colin to arrive for his shift at 8pm. When he got there, Whelan went straight to work, completely unaware that he was being watched. The police approached him and told him he was being arrested. Whelan was insistent that he was in fact Martin Sweeney and that they had the wrong man and he even assured his colleagues that he'd be back to work in no time once everything was cleared up. Of course, he wasn't. Whelan was identified by his fingerprints and was returned to Ireland on foot of a European arrest warrant. He had decided not to fight the extradition process because 
he would have been held in a Spanish prison during that process, something he understandably wanted to avoid. Whelan was handed over to Irish authorities at Madrid Airport on the 23rd of July. They flew to Dublin, and that night Colin Whelan slept in a Garda station, awaiting his appearance at the Bridewell the next morning. He was remanded in custody. The following Monday, after spending the weekend in Clover Hill, he appeared in front of the Central Criminal Court for a hearing to determine when Whelan would face trial. Lewin O'Brannan, acting on behalf of Whelan, asked Mr Justice Paul Carney to consider setting a trial date well into the future in order to secure a fair trial for his client in light of the recent publicity the case had garnered. Justice Carney shot that down. He said that the case had been due to take place the previous October and that the delay had been entirely of Whelan's causing. Colin Whelan was, unsurprisingly, further remanded in custody. Whelan's brother-in-law, Jimmy Brazel, was then ordered to appear before the court. Whelan's brother-in-law, Jimmy Brazel, was then ordered to appear before the court. He had acted as independent surety for Whelan, to the tune of £9,900. Jimmy Brazel lost €1,000 for Whelan's faked death and absconding. A trial date was set for early the next year, to begin on April 11th. Colin Whelan was represented by both Lewin O'Brien, junior counsel, and Hugh Hartnett, senior counsel, both formidable criminal barristers, and they were served with a comprehensive book of evidence, outlining what the Gardaí had gathered during their brief but thorough investigation into Mary Goff's murder. Courtroom number two was packed the morning of the 11th of April 2005, awaiting the trial of the man who had faked his own suicide and was accused of murdering his wife. The first case to be dealt with that morning by Mr Justice Carney was another trial, though. A jury had been selected and needed to be sworn, so it wasn't until just after 11am that the court registrar called Colin Whelan's case forward. Mary Goff's family sat in the court, awaiting the beginning of a gruelling murder trial, and the press also sat waiting, anticipating close coverage of the case in the Irish media. Mr Hartnett's senior counsel rose and informed the court that a jury would not be needed. The defendant was entering a guilty plea. There was a stunned silence. Guilty pleas in murder cases are almost unheard of in Ireland, given that being found guilty has a preordained result, a life sentence. Usually, even where the evidence is incredibly strong, a defence team will make the state prove its case beyond a reasonable doubt and pick at anything that might be vaguely problematic. But this was what Colin Whelan and his defence team had decided on as the best course of action. The plea was accepted by both the state and Mr Justice Carney, and Whelan was remanded in custody to appear in court again the next day to go through the sentencing procedure, where he knew he would be handed down a life sentence. The following day, Superintendent Thomas Gallagher was sworn in to run through the evidence in the case against Whelan, for the benefit of the judge and for the record. He told Mr Justice Carney about Mary's background, and indeed Colin Whelan's background. Superintendent Gallagher went through all the evidence, Mary's injuries, the strange internet searches, the affair, the insurance money. 
The physical evidence and the forensic evidence, like the bloodstains in the house, were described. He laid out for the judge and for the press, public and Mary's family what had happened that night and why. There had been no fall, no accident like Whelan had told paramedics, doctors, the police and the Goff family. Rather, what the evidence pointed to was a premeditated murder, motivated by money and unhappiness with the circumstances of Whelan's own life, underlined by his strange obsession with strangulation and murder. That night, Mary had made her way upstairs in their home in Balbriggan, wearing her teddy bear print pyjamas, and had gone into the master bedroom. She hadn't showered, just merely began her bedtime routine. Colin had walked calmly up behind her and slipped the cord of his dressing gown around his wife's neck. Mary had struggled in shock and then tried to fight off her husband. She scratched him a number of times trying to fend him off, but the bigger man was too strong for her. Colin got a towel around Mary's neck and resumed strangling her with the cord. Whelan had managed to pull his wife onto their bed and pulled the cord tight around her neck until Mary's face turned a deep purple and she lost consciousness. As Mary struggled to breathe and with blood coming from her nose and mouth, Colin pulled her from the bed and dragged her roughly down the stairs, pulling her down step by step, and left her at the bottom of the stairs. Whelan had then covered her with a duvet in an attempt to keep her warm as she passed away. Try and obscure her time of death was surely imminent. It was some time after that that Whelan had finally called for emergency services. Once the facts of the case had been set out for the judge, one of Mary's brothers stood to give an impact statement on behalf of the Goff family. Peter Goff described how special and important Mary was to their family and how much she was missed. He told Whelan that he was a coward for fleeing and that he'd destroyed more than Mary's life when he'd brutally strangled her. Peter said the Goffs would never forgive Whelan for what he had done. Mr. Justice Carney then spoke, imposing the life sentence. Usually, sentences will be backdated, the time a prisoner began their period in custody. But Justice Carney said that because Whelan had fled the country, and because he had drawn out the legal process, first by asking to put off the trial, and then by waiting until the last possible moment to enter a guilty plea, this was not a concession that would be extended to him. Whelan, after all, had done nothing but prolong the suffering of the Goff family and prevented them, needlessly, from having any sense of closure in the matter. After the sentence was passed, Colin Whelan was brought back to Cloverhill Prison to serve the first day of his life sentence. Today, Mary's family still mourn her loss her mother Marie particularly so. They were more than just mother and daughter. They were friends, more like sisters. She feels the loss of Mary keenly. And to have lost Mary at the hands of a man they all trusted, who had hidden his true self and his motivations from them all so fully that even in the aftermath of Mary's murder, it was hard to believe that he was responsible. But he was. Colin Whelan ended Mary Goff's life for a list of senseless reasons. For money, for a new life, for excitement. What he got instead was a life sentence.
and the Garth family got one too. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. Don't forget, if you like us, subscribe and leave a review. Better yet, tell a friend. That really is, that really is the easiest way to support your favourite podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at mensreapod or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks this week to Lyda Kaiser, Alison Ryland, Louisa Timothy, Tanya Todd and Damien Stent. Patron support means that this show can keep going. It's a lot of work for one person on their own and so I appreciate every single penny of it. In return, patrons get ad-free and early release episodes, as well as bonus episodes up to twice a month, and nifty merch. I hope you'll check it out. Also, a huge thank you to this week's sponsor, HelloFresh. Remember to head to hellofresh.co.uk and enter the code MENSREA at checkout for £60 off. Supporting our sponsors also supports this show and keeps the episodes coming. So if you want to help me out and feed yourself some delicious homemade dinners, go get yourself a sweet discount. Our theme music is Quinn's Song, The Dance Begins by Kevin MacLeod. Additional music by Juanita Meisel and Kevin MacLeod. This podcast was researched, written and produced by me, your host Sinead. The main source for today's episode was the excellent book by reporter Siobhan Gaffney who was not only present in the court, but also interviewed extensively Mary Goff's mother, Marie. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. Till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Q-O-